Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Привет, мои друзья. Hello, my friends. Kristaps has done an amazing job creating an entertaining show covering the Eastern Bloc during the Cold War. If you're looking for an interesting new program on a totally different subject, check us out. We're the Iroquois History and Legends podcast. My brother and I tell the story of the Iroquois Confederacy. They were a Native American superpower that controlled and influenced much of the Northeastern United States. Their society and culture influenced the modern American Constitution and the women's suffrage movement. When you're done here, look us up. That's Iroquois, I-R-O-Q-U-O-I-S, Iroquois History and Legends Podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Google Play, Spreaker, and many others. And now, without further ado, here is the man, the myth, the legend, Christos. Greetings, comrades. This episode was intended to be about 1990, the creation of independence, hopes and dreams, looking at the West with eyes full of naiveness, ended up being about media and lies and filth and going backwards and how things change and how the view of the events can change. In the end, we are all biased in some way, you know? But bias doesn't mean that we are allowed to blatantly lie. This one is about lies, old and recent. That is a personally painful one for me to make. See, my little grandmother, she had uh, saved up a lot of newspapers from the era of the collapse of the USSR or the awakening, Atmod as we call it here, and they're very revealing and valuable documents. Pictures of the Soviet era newspapers used in this episode will be on our website, accompanying the show. Oh, and um, answering a question that popped up since the last episode, uh, to view show notes and pictures, you have to click either on the name of the episode or the read more symbol on our homepage, theeasternborder.lv. They uh, don't automatically appear, because <laughs> I like minimalism, but I probably should have warned about this uh, beforehand. Before we can get to all the old stuff, and before we can do the chronological events, recent events have forced me to start with a brand new, very recent article, which is well connected to Atmoda, well-connected to our lives, and is very painful. It also reveals a certain zeitgeist and a feel in the air, and is 
very connected with everything that's going on. It's from the site called rubaltic.ru, which calls itself an uh, analytical portal of the Baltic region. It's a somewhat special site. And you know what? We'll be looking at a um, few articles, actually. Yeah, few articles. One from Rubaltic and um, some others, for comparison. Between each other, and between now and then. Making this episode made me very, very angry. Very angry. Because it touches on uh, a deep personal tragedy of the Baltic states and tries to make a mockery out of it. So, this article is by a certain Denis Kuzmin. It was written in the 17th of August, 2016. The article is titled, In Moscow, the truth about the Lithuanian independence struggle has just been published. I will basically be retelling the article for convenience. Uh, there will be direct quotes when, uh, when noted. See, this article is about a book. It's about a book presentation, to be exact. Uh, and this book has just been published in Moscow. This book here, about which the article talks about, is by a certain Galina Sapozhnikova. And the book is titled Who Betrayed Whom? Who Killed the Soviet Union and What Happened to Those Who Tried to Save It? Galina is a journalist, or so she calls herself, who has graduated Leningrad State University in 1988 as a journalist. And apparently has been dabbling into writing history books and working in various newspapers from then on. Even, and this is important, receiving Russia's Journalism Award, the Golden Feather, in 2004. Now, before analyzing this article, I looked at her previous book, and that one was uh, also about Baltics. And it was called Arnold Meri, the Last Hero of Estonia. Now, to put some context in how this woman writes, is that uh, I have to explain who this Arnold Meri is. See, for starters... I wouldn't call him a hero of Estonia. He was, however, a hero of the Soviet Union. And an interesting fellow indeed. You see, this Meri was born in 1919. He joined the Red Army voluntarily in 1940, by the way, while the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact was still in place. And at about the same time that Stalin had decided that our three little countries had no real reason to exist anymore. As Meri was a dedicated communist, he was elected to the city communist youth organization of uh, Estonia's capital Tallinn and ordered to organize a communist youth organization or Komsomol in his Estonian army unit. Now after Estonian army was no more and got integrated in the Red Army, our nice young man became a deputy political officer, or Politrop as we call him. Now if you recall, that's the person who's responsible for proper communist morale. Let should tell you something about uh, fanaticism, okay? He fought in the war for the Red Army. He shot heroism, was wounded a couple of times, really went uh, really hard uh, fighting against the Nazis, received the Lenin's order, and became the first Estonian ever to receive the Hero of the Soviet Union title. After World War II, retiring from the Red Army as a, col as a colonel, he served as the secretary of the Communist Youth Organization's Central Committee. And yeah, you know, man fights Nazis, pretty good, is a hero, okay, fine. But this is where things go a bit shady. 
You see, we have talked about the 1949 deportations before. They hit all the Baltic countries, and a lot of people just died. And according to the recent Estonian prosecution, relatively recent, Miri participated in and was charged with genocide in 2007 because of his role in these deportations. Now, uh, the thing is, Meri did openly state and admit that, yes, he indeed participated in organizing the deportation of uh, 251 Estonian civilians from the island of Hiyuma to the Novosibirsk region of Siberia. By the way, this region also contained uh, the youngest person uh, to be deported from Estonia, just a year old baby who died in the exile next year. However, Meri himself, even though he was an official, maintained that he was just a civil servant, and he was appointed to monitor the compliance of this process, current laws at the time, and to ensure that the punitive actions, like the deportations, that those would be limited to the, quote, individuals specifically listed by security services. Now, Meri claimed that he was unable to control the abuses of the local authorities and withdrew from the process. And he's kind of a, a very high party position at this point. Now, interestingly enough, Meri was stripped of all of his titles and orders and benefits he had received in 1951. Now, it's hard to find the sources of why, but supposedly, because he was writing to the authorities, trying to attempt the review of certain deportation cases to get some people back. Another version states that it was because of his withdrawal, as claimed by Meri himself and happened in 1949, but this is not certain. He was later rehabilitated in 1956 and led a peaceful life until 2007 when he was charged with this genocide. He died in March 27, 2009, without any conclusion to the trial. What's interesting is that he was the cousin of Lennart Meri, the first Estonian president after the collapse of the USSR, who served two terms. Lennart was himself deported in 1941, later rehabilitated, but apparently the cousins never spoke, never made any contact, and apparently they really hated each other, or at least didn't love each other. So, uh, yeah, this Arnold Meri guy. Galina Sapoznikova calls him the last hero of Estonia, the savior of Soviet values, the one man who cared about every last being ever and, and glorifies him to no end. Meanwhile, others claim that he is responsible of participating in uh, actual genocide. Well, you know, the, the reality, as usual, is uh, often much more complex than just black and white, I think. Now, I don't want to judge Mary. Then again, I wouldn't call this man a hero either. Obviously, he lived in a complex era, and his decisions, as we can see here, were not simple, and he had a conscience, at least, and, and he just was an idealist, maybe, I don't know. In both ways, some people call him a mass murderer, other people, like Galina, which is gonna be, which wrote the book that uh, the article is about, because I just wanted to do some back research, calls him the greatest hero ever of the Estonians. That's... Not a really surprise, because um, the Russian Federation, which is technically the only legal successor state to the Soviet Union, actually has never recognized the deportations as a crime, and has always criticized uh, any related prosecutions as just pure evil vengeance. 
We do it because we are all Nazis. No deportations happened, never happened bad. Hmm. Heck, they uh, don't even admit that they annexed us in any violent way. Really, uh, Putin has said that occupation never happened, everything's voluntary, uh, of course, yeah. But okay, back to this article. Um, as the new books about Lithuania and the end of the Soviet Union. I just wanted to look at this for some background. Now, here's a quote from the article about the book. <clears throat> who betrayed whom, who killed the Soviet Union and what happened to those who tried to save it, is more than an exciting historical read. It's also a punishing death sentence to the myths of occupation and the legends about the heroical, national, nationally liberating battle against the USSR, not only in Lithuania, but in the whole Baltic region. Then, the author of the article quotes the book. The population of Lithuania was psychologically zombified. They were being prepared to offer sacrifices to the altar of freedom. At the same time, quickly, armed groups of fighters were formed. But if there is a negative idea of sacrificing something, then there are scenarios of bringing it to life. End quote. Well, Americans and other Western friends, turns out, if we draw some philosophical parallels here, uh, our famous dedication to liberty would also be a result of psychological zombification, according to this author. Oh, and the article, the article goes on. You need to take into account that the nationalists were themselves shooting at the people who died in the process. You can't blame the Soviet army here. That would be a crime and a distortion of the historical reality. Varenikov and Kuzmin, uh, who were involved Soviet soldiers in this event, I'll explain about it later, don't worry. These people guarded people from both sides. How everything happened, nobody can tell. But there was no order from the guard commander to open fire. I can attest to that. I had a radio phone, with which I could call Moscow, the higher-ups and commanders. But they called me, and asked me what to do themselves as everybody was jumping around and breaking stuff everywhere. This lady has all the Russian money, press attention, and a nice prize for serving the regime loyally. What do I have? <laughs> well, the truth, and that's good. Evidence in paper form, saved by my grandmother, and you guys. Let's see how we match these things up. First off, I... Uh, wanted to do a specific episode about all these tragical events, and I will get to this in a proper large timeline. But apparently, you know, it's obvious that I do have to explain about what the lady is writing here. Now you see, what happened in Vilnius, or Vilnius as we call it in Latvian, during the barricade events in 1981, is a huge tragedy. In in kind of the ways of looking at it, it's somewhat like 9-11 in the impact. We are jumping around a bit. Okay, I know, this episode was supposed to be about 1990, but we'll get to this, and I want to show you why we're afraid here. Basically, Lithuania declared independence from the Soviet Union on March 11, 1990. Uh, Latvia did it on May the 4th, 1990, Estonia, November 16, 1988, with weird things going on after that, but these were all just declarations, without approval from the Soviet government or anything. And they also had a congress in Estonia, and a lot of troubles for Baltic republics, 
such as economical sanctions by the USSR to Lithuanians and other things. The events in uh, 1981 in Vilnius triggered the so-called barricades. Now, what happened was that uh, basically after a lot of turmoil, on January the 10th, Gorbachev addressed the Higher Council of Lithuania, asking them, basically ordering them, to get back in the USSR with that USSR constitution and cancel all laws that were in opposition to the Soviet nation. Oh, and, you know, uh, he dropped the small bomb of that, uh, uh, you know, uh, military intervention could be possible within days. Now, Lithuanian higher council asked him, what, are you going to bring army here or something? Now, uh, Gorbi never answered that question. Gorbi remained silent, and um, after that, it all led dreadful things. You see, in Lithuania, 14 people were killed and 712 injured. In Riga, a few days later, in a shootout, five more were killed. In Vilnius, Soviet tanks literally drove over and squished people. The army opened fire on civilians. These events, uh, with all the things, they deserve an episode on their own. And all the barricade period lasted from the 11th to the 13th of January. But in the 13th of January, 1991, in Lithuania, the Soviets, who were attempting a coup of this now-declared independent Lithuanian government, wanted to acquire control of the television tower. And there were people there who wanted to prevent them from doing that, and they hoped that, uh, you know, maybe they'll stop them. So then the Soviets ordered tanks literally driven over people, and... Open f- and they ordered to open fire at the protesters there, the people who were guarding their independence. They uh, managed to acquire the control of the TV tower and even started broadcasting for a while, and this will become important. And the broadcast said, Brother Lithuanians, the nationalist and separatist government which confronted the people has been overthrown. Go home to your parents and children. Yeah, well, it all ended differently and... Uh, like I said, separate episode, but you get the idea, and um, it's a quite terrible tragedy that happened. Here is what our newspapers said about the events in Vilnius and in Riga. In Riga we just had tragic shootings. Weird. We were all afraid that the same things that happened in Vilnius could transpire over here. The newspaper, Voice of Riga, 23rd of January, 1991. Article called Bloody Theater of the Absurd by Rudolf Svilksnitsch. <clears throat> what happened on Sunday, I think, does not allow for any rational analysis. No, of course, by now there are almost no fools remaining who can't figure out how this whole matryoshka is set up. More or less we can imagine what we'll see if we remove the top layer of the Omon special squad people. Everyone understands who is in the middle of all of this too. Everyone understands that the exact command, turn right, was sounded from the command bridge, and the insane tank action in Vilnius is just another case that proves the talents and morals of the Soviet upper leadership. The murder of the chauffeur, Robert Smurniks, shooting at the calmly, slowly moving bus, the attack of the Milizia of our Latvian Republic, and a shootout in the center of Riga, where it's always full with pedestrians, just also make no sense. It doesn't matter 
from what viewpoint you look at this madness. This pointless action, which ended up with four deaths and more wounded people, by the way, most of the hurt people were non-Latvians, doesn't fit any of the potential versions of how a Soviet coup of our republic could even be attempted. The night from Sunday to Monday clearly, again, proved that the resistance against the communists in Latvia and in the Baltics in general is not organized by any national lines. Later in the same article. I remember the forgery of the Leningrad journalism superman Nevzora, reread certain passages from Litvinova, where she tries to mask the evidence that would lead to the murderers of Murnex. Again, in my mind comes the President Gorby's ultimate demands to Moldova and Lithuania. And also the fact that he, Gorbachev, is the high commander of the armed forces. And he is now stating that he had no idea what was going on in Vilnius, and that in the last few days his team has been abandoned by multiple valuable advisors. But how shall we live if the Black Sotnya, the Black Hundred, the Omon squads, the Soviet KGB with machine guns in hand, will slowly spread their influence throughout Latvia and then throughout the whole Union? End quote. Yeah, guess what could possibly happen if later on we would have someone with as much KGB ties and as much of an ambition and desire to turn the time back as Andropov and other Soviet leaders would. <laughs> and what would happen then? Another news article. This is uh, from the News in Short uh, section. Same newspaper by Anna Kozlova. There are three specific short news that I want to read to you. Last Sunday, denouncing the brutal and bloody violence of the army in Lithuania, there were mass, mass protests in Russia, Sverdlovsk, Leningrad and Moscow. In Leningrad, in the palace square, around 20,000 people had assembled. In Moscow, the number was much larger, around 400,000 people. The people in Moscow demanded the resignations of the President Gorbachev, Minister of Defense Yazov, and the Minister of Interior Pugo. There were a ton of posters, you could read things like Lithuania today, Russia tomorrow, and freedom is stronger than bullets and the Kremlin murderers. The protest movement in Moscow was organized by the movement Democratic Russia and its leader Yuri Afanasyev. And another one, it's one of these small articles. He who sows wind reaps a storm. Directly after the tragic events of the night having arrived in the Latvian television, this was said by a Russian priest of the Orthodox Church, a Zotov, addressing these words to all the politicians standing behind the actions of the Omon Black Berets. A Zotov was participating in the talks with the Oman squads together with General Goncharenko during the night while those squads had taken over our Ministry of Interior. End of, of this small article. Now, next one. Uh, these are interesting, aren't they? Assistant Chief of the Latvian KGB, Trubinch, denouncing the Oman squad violence, has announced that his organization, that is the Latvian KGB, shall only obey the orders of the Latvian Republic and its government. And, you know, last one of these short news. Provocative explosions have already reached Estonia. During the night on Monday, there were two explosions in Tallinn. There are damaged buildings and a lot of destroyed windows. Thankfully, nobody has been hurt. As we can see, the scenario remains the same. Now, I choose these because they're very representative. You see, we hated the Omon, the Kremlin murderers, and the communists, and people in Russia were showing a lot of support for what was going on there, going on here. Everyone knew about what happened in Vilnius. And now, and now, 
they like to present us as Nazis and call us zombified because we wanted freedom. Back then, everyone, everyone wanted to get rid of the damn commies. Well, everyone who wasn't a commie, at least. Soviet Union was essentially um, a prison for the working class, and uh, Russia, after that, was a good neighbor for a while. Things have changed pretty fast now, haven't they? Russophobes we were not, not one bit. We all were punks and wanted that big, big burger. Now, I will devote an episode for when and how it started to go wrong, but... Uh, then again, episode 18 contains quite a lot of information on this. Because that KGB thing, those Omon guys, I think it, it has returned. Let's go back to this uh, so-called final nail in the coffin of Lithuanian independence struggle. And uh, to some nice parallels that Ms. Zapoznikova mentions in her presentation, that this wonderful article quotes gleefully. <clears throat> Quote, Jumps around in the modern situation. This statement has a symbolic meaning. Truth to be told, recent events in Maidan in Ukraine, to the pain, reminds me the drama in all meanings of the word in Lithuania in 1991. Same mysterious snipers, same ritualistic sacrifices, same blaming of Moscow, same guidance by the West, theatralism, and banal russophobia under the cover of fighting against the empire. And a bit further on. Mm -mm. First part of the book is dedicated to the January events in 1991 in Vilnius. I didn't go into the, th the technicalities of what actually happened there. Instead, I tried to give the maximum amount of freedom to the participants and observers of those events. But I understood completely clearly that we're dealing with one of the most devious historical falsifications ever. It became especially clear when we saw Maidan on Kiev in our TV screens. Compare the technologies, compare the heroes. Same scenario, not even a half a tune of difference. Thus, drawing parallels, said in her book presentation, Galina Sapozhnikova. Oh, and then she mentions her main witnesses, uh, main sources for her book. Um, before I talk about those, just remember what uh, happened in Vilnius there, and what she's basically saying right now is that, uh, well, I, I would like to mention some other country, but imagine if the Russians would just uh, publicly present a presentation somewhere, like right now, in Moscow, stating that uh, we have this book, and we have proven that 9-11 was an inside job, but you know what, it's, it's actually okay. The Americans deserved it because they are all Nazis. Everyone's a Nazi. I think by now everyone's a Nazi. Yeah, so, um... Just to put things in context, this is how we feel emotionally about what the book really states now. Her witnesses. These are also very interesting people, because, you know, maybe you might be thinking, well, what if, what if what she says has some legitimacy? Well, now, the most notable witnesses uh, of all of them, the main sources of the book, are, for one, Mikhail Golovatov, the ex-commander of the Alpha Group the Alpha Tank Group, who was arrested in Vienna in, tw in 2011 after the demand of Lithuania for the charges concerning the his role in the events in Vilnius in the 13th, 1991. Yeah, one of her sources is tank commander who got the order to, to drive over the people. Another one of them is Yuzas uh, Ermalavichus, I hope I pronounced it correctly. He's one of the most hated people in uh, Lithuanian for a good reason. She calls him one of the Red Professors, an active member of the Interfront, a political prisoner. Now, 
This guy, wow. Ermelavichos is the person who is screaming that brother Lithuanians, the nationalist and separatist government, uh, has been overthrown thing when the Oman squads overtook the TV tower. He is the guy who would become the new leader of the Soviet Lithuania if the coup had succeeded. The Soviet army drove over people with tanks and shot civilians so that this, this scum could get into power. He was the main perpetrator of all of these things. He was the reason why this happened. He was the driving horse. Now, as the coup failed, he was obviously imprisoned. And not for the political views, obviously. Now, at the age of 61, in 2002, he, by that time already a Russian citizen, by the way, was released from the prison. And, as Baltic Times reported that day, <clears throat> quote, Asked by reporters about his future plans, he said, We'll soon solve all issues of historical importance. When asked if he felt any guilt, he answered simply, No. What guilt? On his planned move to Moscow or Minsk, he said ironically, Oh no no, life is too good here, I'm going to the worst country in the world. With that, he jumped into the Russian embassy's Fort Sierra and left the prison area. Yermalavichus received Russian citizenship a year ago while in prison. Russian embassy staff regularly visited him during his incarceration. Yermalavichus even got letters of support from Gennady Zyuganov, the head of the Russian Communist Party. We are meeting an honored citizen of Russia, Yuzhanin was quoted as saying according to several Lithuanian newspapers. Wow, I know that uh, many terrorists are, are, are gone already, but in 2002, uh, I don't know, imagine if you had actually captured Osama bin Laden alive and put him in prison. And imagine that he serves his sentence, but while he's in prison, he receives uh, citizenship from some Arab country, they, uh, they greet him as the hero, and as he exits the prison, this random Arab country just grabs Osama bin Laden, declares him a hero, and says, oh yeah, you're a cool dude, everything, America is terrible, we, we're just gonna take you, you're the best guy ever. This is how Russia and uh, Yermolavichus really feel for us. And this guy obviously is not welcome in Fueni. Other sources involved, involved in her article, from which he draws, drives the major points of everything, are um, also Antanas Piatrakauskas the last prosecutor general of the Lithuanian SSR, a general major of Justici. Yes, they used to have military ranks for judges back then. And you can guess why. Now, um, and the... Also, Aligimantas Naujunas, a general major of the Space Corps, who at the time was the acting secretary of the Lithuanian Communistic Party's Central Committee. All of these nice people were arrested in that TV tower. All of them were involved in the events of those three tragic days, especially the last one. All of them are now and then giving interviews to Russian media about how everything has gone downhill since the collapse of the USSR. They all live in Russia. They are all very much not welcome here anymore. Now, there are Latvians and Estonians just like that too. I don't want to put the blame on Lithuanians here. For one, a former mayor of Riga, Alfred Srubiks, which was the leader of the local communistic party, he also spent time in prison for the Oman activities in Riga. And well, now, lately, Anton Vanyo, the new Putin's chief of staff, is an Estonian. About whom the New Yorker writes that, quote, 
His grandfather was the Communist Party chief in Estonia who wanted to suppress the pro-independence movement there in the late 1980s. He was denied permission to do so and moved his family to Moscow in 1988 when Anton Vanyo was 16. Yeah, you know, <laughs> given the chance, he would also kind of uh, would like to drive tanks over the people. By the way, if you're wondering why Lithuania took the brunt and why there were some deaths in Latvia, but things went down relatively peaceful in Estonia, it is because uh, at that time, in the party circles, Lithuanians were considered the most dangerous, the proudest, with a history of being a mighty state themselves and with the largest population. If the Lithuania would fall back to the Soviets, we all would, or so they thought up there. Then there was Riga, a major and important city, a port city after all. And the idea was that, say, let's, let's make some trouble there, uh, turn things over here, then, well, at least Estonia, who had the smallest population at the time and considered the least dangerous to the regime, that would fall. And, you know, maybe after that we could try again in Lithuania later. But, you know, we didn't fall, it turns out. And now, Miss Galina, who dares to not only call herself a journalist, but also make conclusions with pretensions to absolute historical truths, says that it's... <clears throat> The same scenario as in Ukraine, in the Maidan. Same scenario. Ukraine. Yeah, we'll get to that. Same scenario indeed, except that we are not talking about Maidan and revolt here. We're talking about uh, annexations. Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia in 1940. Attempts of the same scenario a year earlier in Finland, 1939. Yeah, that didn't work out that well. Numerous pre-made governments with fake elections and uh, people demanding to join the USSR. <laughs> yeah. And now Crimea, 2014. Same scenario indeed. And you know what? For all the faults that Yeltsin had, at least he actually wanted democracy. He wanted the Russian people, not some elites, to live well. And, unlike Gorbachev, Yeltsin didn't order tanks to drive onto people and shoot at civilians. Yeltsin did not purposefully irradiate thousands of Ukrainian children to cover up Chernobyl. And, unlike Gorby, Yeltsin also did not receive a Nobel Peace Prize. Receiving a Nobel Peace Prize because it could get even worse but didn't is one of the weirdest things out there. To respond to, uh, to the statements of Ms. Galina, another newspaper from January 1991, <clears throat> The Independent Struggle, a newspaper for the Latvian Republic, 22nd of January, the article, New Events in Lithuania. In some districts of Lithuania, especially in Vilnius, the militarist forces have started to become active again. Thus was reported in the Lithuanian Higher Council press briefing. Several incidents have happened during the night. The military is still blocking the roads that, le that lead to Vilnius. Every vehicle entering or exiting the city is being thoroughly searched. Personal belongings of the drivers and passengers are often taken away. It's an open highway robbery performed by Soviet army units, led by their officers. More and more drunk soldiers can be seen on the streets. They are, of course, armed. Every day, more and more secrets are revealed, tied to the so-called Lithuanian Nation Rescue Committee. Collaborators in Lithuania already have begun to declare themselves coordination councils. There is information that in these councils there are many of the old Lithuanian Communist Party activists from Vilnius, professional party bureaucrats from various districts, members of the USSR KGB, and the retired Soviet military members. Some surnames are already known. There is another point of tension now in Lithuania. The Higher Council has been informed that the Soviet army shall not leave Germany by land, but rather with a ferry, over the sea, 
which will take them to Klaipan, where the first Soviet soldiers and armored personal carriers from Germany have already arrived. According to plan, the full removal of the Soviet forces from Germany will take up to four years. And finally, before a small break, some fragments from, um, from an article that I really want to read you, from the last article of these old newspapers. Same number, Independent Struggle, by um, Arya Klimkanov. The article is called Crosses on the Road. Slowly, with piety, humbly, I walk towards the wooden crosses planted in the ground. There is a man there, standing there, silently. And we both stay silent and look at the morning candlelights, flickering the cold, sharp wind. After a moment of silence, I ask the man, who looks about fifty, Excuse me, are you a relative? And he responds, very slowly, putting a powerful accent on each word, We are Latvians. So, we are relatives indeed. And we stay silent again for a while. Maybe looking at the various flowers placed here, and maybe only at the grape grass. The man is praying quietly. Don't allow more Latvians to die and perish. But one of us has died again. Someone, again, is standing in a place where one of us has been killed by a bullet to the back of the head fired by an Oman soldier. Suddenly, two cars arrive to visit the crosses. The newly arrived people place morning candles here. They speak in Estonian and Russian. And I don't want to leave this bridge where, in the grey grass, the crosses are slowly weathering out without saying something about the Russians. Sleek, black-bearded fishermen Haralds from the fisherman's kolhoz Victory would be disappointed about it, and so would be other men who sit around the fireplace in the barricades back in the center. Harald was standing tall there and talking in Russian. Grandma, we have enough of everything. You see, there, there's plenty of tea and food here, thank you. The Oman people had thrown out our supplies during the night, but people brought more. The men couldn't accept the gifts given from the heart by this Russian lady. I also spoke with her. She couldn't understand Latvian language, but she could feel like a Latvian. She could understand Latvians. Those four guys in the group sitting next to that there fireplace, they're Russians too, Harald's point. The granny asks him not to lose them, and Harald responds. Either we all go down and become lost, or we all survive and become free. That's the only way. Haralds didn't tell me his surname. The granny didn't either. We are all equal, and we all walk our path to the cross right now. End quote. Nazis. Obviously. Totally. Just like the Ukrainians now, and whomever the big damn state declares as such. Oh, and the uh, Americans, you are the super-Nazis, because you obviously help everyone else who is also a Nazi. <laughs> oh, man, the damn KGB. Same people, same shady groups, same black hundreds, chorne sotnes they were called. And I think they've taken hostage the Russian people by now. And slowly working to get their minds, too. I, I'm sorry, I'm disgusted by all of this. It wasn't like this. And you know... Latvian politicians, the corrupt scumbags, ex-communists who managed to be in power and wanted to keep the power, yeah, they are actually to blame too. They'll manage to ruin this environment just a few years later, that is for another episode, but um, see, Lithuanians, after, after full independence, gave citizen, citizenship to everyone. With Latvia and Estonia, I think we, uh, we didn't do it. We gave uh, citizenship automatically only to 
those people who were themselves citizens of the old pre-war Latvia and descendants of those people, which meant that a lot of local local Russian people who came here during the Soviet era didn't get citizenship. <laughs> and the usual excuse is that, oh, no, no, they, they would all vote pro-Soviet, and they, we would just lose our independence. And you know what? I'm reading these articles and I understand that, no, there was no hatred back then. There was no splitting of people. And, and when... Um, and that is also details in the future. But when there was this vote in um, in the elections about Latvia, about Latvian National Front and us getting independence, essentially it ended up about eighty five percent of Latvia voted for independence, and there were and only fifty percent of Latvia were actually Latvians. So uh, yeah, it was a somewhat of a cynical cynical grab to stay in to stay in power. I think at least. So right now, this is one of the reasons why uh, the Russian-speaking population here is somewhat more Putin-friendly, and I can understand them. They feel a bit betrayed. But as we have these tensions here now and then, and I try to make sure they don't happen, I, I try to be open and friendly, and we, we try to work this through, because there are a lot of Russians who say to me, no, no, I don't want to live in Putin's Russia. But these tensions are here in Latvia and Estonia. But this article was about Lithuania. You want to know why it was about Lithuania and why Lithuania gets lately the most bad press from Russia? Because they give citizenship to everyone. They have way less of these tensions. There are no natural tensions because of the stupidity of their politicians there. Therefore, such tensions should be artificially created. First and foremost, thank you to everyone who donated for our wedding in our fundraiser episode. Super special large thank you to everyone who supports us on Patreon. If you haven't done so already, we would like to have your one local currency via PayPal. You can still make it. The wedding's on the 15th of September. Uh, yeah, you can support this show in patreon.com slash the eastern border, or you can just click the sign up button on our Facebook page, the eastern border. If you donate at least $1 per episode, you will receive an ebook and as of now, two movie riff tracks. We're going to be making them soon, just life is busy. If you donate at least $3 per episode, you can participate in the Soviet souvenir draw. If you donate $5 or more per episode, you can get bigger and fancier souvenirs such as Russian banknotes and stuff. If you want to do a one-time donation, that is also completely okay and accepted and more than welcome. In that case, go to theeasternborder.lv and click the donate button. And while you're at it, leave us a comment. Check out the pictures and show notes for the various shows. Maybe you can complete our listener poll. Those likes and dislikes that you write in there really help us improve the show. We read all of it and uh, we try to take criticism seriously. Oh yeah, and it uh, turns out we were also supposed to say a personal thank you to everyone who's supporting us at uh, the $5 or more level, level per month. We will do it in a future episode. So I apologize for this. Also, please do post the, the pins and, and stuff that we have actually sent you on our Twitter or Facebook. We, I just want to make sure they're there. We, we can't send out a lot of pins and banknotes each month, both because shipping from Latvia to various places in the world can get progressively very expensive, and also because, you know, there's, a, there's only a limited amount of Soviet stuff available on the planet, right? And uh, also, I think that at least half of them are getting lost on the mail. So, once you have it, picture it some, somehow, so that I would be... I would be sure. Uh, some got resent back, so for August, to make uh, make up for it, uh, email us your shipping address. 
at theeasternborder at gmail.com and uh, we'll be drawing out a larger number of souvenirs. I, I really want to make sure this happens, I want some drawbacks, so uh, yeah. I, I want to give you something for your support, because your support is extremely important to me, and uh, it drives me on, it drives me on that uh, I can maybe tell the story of my people and uh, reveal some intricacies on what's going on here. We're also preparing to have t-shirts, cups, and possibly even a book book for you, possibly. So keep listening, and please support us so that I can at least outlast the crooked guys on the other side of the border. That and, yeah, don't forget to check out the Lester Bonaparte's, where Glenn and I take a less than serious and more punk attitude to weirder parts of history. Right now we're doing a series on the Varangian Guard. Also, you might want to try out People's Democratic Republic of podcasts. Two episodes are on this feed, but there will be no more of that, uh, so sign up on iTunes or go to PDRP and listen to my Gonzo multinational, multi-issue, honest and brutal journalism interview show that just might induce thinking. PDRP. PDRP LV or find People's Democratic Republic of Podcast on iTunes. On the next ep- One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Episode of that, by the way, we shall have Soren from History of Denmark talking about, well, Denmark. And about, is that a great place as Bernie Sanders has described it to be? And after that, you'll get a special treat. Glenn from Lesser Bonaparte's and Prof. CJ from Dangerous History Podcast discuss third parties, no parties, and economy. And I interviewed them. And even though they're on the completely opposite ends of the spectrum, the spectrum being completely outside of uh, the regular left-right thing, they actually agreed on many things and we had a great and civilized discussion. And last, but not least, check out Dark Myths Podcast. As you know, we are a member of the Dark Myths Collective, and there are a lot of awesome podcasts in our group. Go check them out at darkmyths.org, or now you can look up the Dark Myths Podcast and listen to interviews with our members. Hosted by yours truly, as uh, I'm the group's journalist, I suppose. But all in all, thank you for listening. Thank you for being here. And yeah... This info part was a bit more cheerful than the rest of the show, but, um, (laughs) really, guys, I needed this. You see, I like to call myself a journalist, but, uh... To call yourself a journalist, you have to do some investigations, especially if you want to match the greats like Hunter S. Thompson. So it wasn't enough to just look at the um, at the article alone. 
and I did some bit of a digging about how this article could have been made, why it was made, who funded it, and stuff like that. And the following is going to get a bit complicated, and this episode will be a bit less nicer than, orig than originally intended, but please bear with me, as after understanding both the article, which, which you do already, I hope, and where it came from, it'll be much easier for you to understand how things actually worked, and still work here, and how any news story coming out from Russia should be understood at first. And also why my podcast relies more on people's experiences and their subjective stories more than any official Soviet history book. Seriously, it wasn't intended that way, but once again, on the eastern border, border the past influences the present, and sadly we have to quote George Orwell again. He who controls the past controls the future. He who controls the present controls the past. Again, I promise it will all make sense by the end. So the site where the article that we were talking about uh, is uh, called rubaltic.ru. But you have to understand what kind of a site that is. It's mostly in Russian, but there are also some articles in Latvian, Lithuanian, Estonian, and English, albeit very rarely. Now you can easily find that this site is Russia-based, with the official address being Kaliningrad, Alexander Nevsky Street 14. Obviously, it's aimed at and is often read by the Russian minorities in the Baltic countries. And, by the way, it doesn't include just Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia. No, they have articles about Finland, about Sweden, all around the, the region. But that's not the sole function. The newspaper's analytical op-eds and articles are often quoted and used in other Russian media to also influence a certain view about the Baltic states, and especially the status of the Russian-speaking people in, in these countries. Huh, how can I be so sure of this? Well, this is where the interesting part starts. You see, Rubaltic Ru, chief editor, is one Sergei Rekeda. He, obviously, is a, is a multi-talented man. He also manages to be the director general of the Information and Analytical Center on social and political processes in the post-Soviet space at the Moscow State University. And that's a tenured spot at a prestigious state university. Now what wonders me is, uh, why is things called post-Soviet space? It's like, we belong in that space or, or something, or, or are we considered still under the Soviet influence? And what exactly is the post-Soviet space then? Technically, all the planet right now is a post-Soviet space, because uh, we all live after the Soviet Union, and all this huge title... What? Is, is this man supposed to be the director of analyzing everything ever politically happening ever? Huh. It, it, uh, the position already looks suspicious to just too wide. Now, but that's not the only thing he does, besides being uh, the chief editor of a major news, ma major news outlet and uh, having a tenured position in the Moscow State University, he is also an active participant in the Russian International Affairs Council. That one is a Russian state-founded, non-profit, academic and diplomatic think tank. And quoting from their site, quote, was established by the resolution of its founders pursuant to the presidential decree number 59RP dated 2nd February 2010 on the establishment of the non-profit partnership, Russian International Affairs Council. So, we have a think tank that is 
Foreign Affairs Council. By that, we can understand that it's supposed to give advice and think tank out the problems to make Russia look good. Otherwise, it's kind of weird to think about foreign affairs thing. And why is this important that it was established by the presidential decree and the founders? You see, the founders of this think tank and the participants which, which work there are 1. Ministry of Foreign Affairs of the Russian Federation 2. Ministry of Education and Science of the Russian Federation 3. Russian Academy of Sciences 4. Russian Union of Industrialists and Interpreters Okay, okay, that's four already. Uh, Foreign Affairs Ministry, great, state organization. Ministry of Education and Science of the Russian Federation. Okay, again, state. Russian Academy of Sciences. Okay, again, state is in there completely. It involves foreign affairs, education, science, and apparently Russian Union of Industrialists and Interpreters. Now, you see, it, it, it looks kind of uh, innocent and nice, but remember the fact that after the purge of the so-called oligarchs, most, the, the largest members of this Russian Union are Gazprom and other Russian, uh, basically state-owned or owned by people close to Putin. So, shady already. But the last founder, because this is, this is not the end of the founders, the last founder is that, for some weird reason, a Moscow-based, officially non-governmental news agency, Interfax International Information Group, is also founded. The Interfax International Information Group is a part of the Interfax Information Service Group. Now, that group is a, a conglomerate of approximately 30 companies, and it owns and is based upon the largest news agency in Russia, which is also called Interfax. Uh, that was established in uh, the late 80s, again, at the beginning, uh, at, the, at the collapse of the Soviet era. It was kind of independent at the beginning. Now, and they like to point out that they are uh, the largest news agency in Russia, and, like they love to add, the rest of the CIS countries. Uh, quick explanation here. CIS in English, or SNG in Russian, stands for Commonwealth of Independent States. That is an alliance and conf confederation of former Soviet republics. Armenia, Azerbaijan, Belarus, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Moldova, Russia, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, and Uzbekistan formed as a successor to the Soviet Union. Note the lack of Baltic countries, Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia, because we never joined them. Lack of Georgia too, which left after they were being invaded by another Commonwealth of Independent States country, their ally, namely Russia, in 2008, which then set up South Ossetia and Abkhazia as puppet states. Note also the lack of Ukraine, which left in 2014, after also being de facto invaded by another CIS country, their allies, namely Russia again, which then led to the annexation of Crimea. So basically, if you're wondering, all this mess about Russia invading things is kind of like United Kingdom would try to invade Canada and annex Nova Scotia. Or, you know, would decide that, you know, the United States government is uh, oppressing the similar to, but not quite, Americans in New England, for one, and set up a semi-independent puppet state there as it has to protect the rights of English-speaking nationals worldwide. Obviously. Okay, now that you know what a farce the Commonwealth of Independent States is, let's go back to Interfax, which is uh, the main news thing. Which, uh, by the way, in Interfax, technically being an independent, again, that is how they call themselves, non-governmental, in air quotes, news agency, owing many, many magazines and journals, the uh, largest in the whole, all of this region, uh, this should be the bulwark of honest journalism, right? 
and stand to protect people against the excesses of state, corrupt politicians, and greedy corporations. And they are the co-founders, together with the state, to a think tank, which, again, quoting from the Russian International Affairs Council homepage, <clears throat> quote, operates as a link between the state, scholarly community, business, and civil society in an effort to find foreign policy solutions to complex conflict issues. Also, RIAC, that's the abbreviation of this, RIAC activities are aimed at strengthening peace, friendship, and solidarity between peoples, preventing international conflicts, and promoting conflict resolution and crisis settlement. There is this nice quote about journalism. If you, if you write something that someone will hate to see published, that's journalism. Anything else is just advertising. The major news agency that just works together with the government and uh, doesn't criticize it and just sits in a think tank, they, they really, really, everything they try to do through rosy words and through their blatant name, because uh, International Affairs Foreign Council, uh, they give advice to Russian officials about how to look good, how to act in foreign affairs. Because, you know, it would be, it would make sense if they would give a good advice to them on how to look good, instead of being terrible and giving bad advice. But bad advice in foreign council means that they would look bad, I suppose so, right? Well, now, free and independent major news agency cooperating with the state to make the state look good? I don't really think that this would happen in Western countries. So, this Russian group, weird thing, is... Uh, <laughs> not only terribly named and silly and suspicious for a think tank, they are also terrible at their stated activities, as we can see from the nice uh, Russia attacking their own allies thing going on there. But there's another weirdness about this fund thing, and this is again from their site. Quote, Remarks by President Dmitry Medvedev made on March 23, 2012 at the workshop conference. Euro-Atlantic Community of Security, Myth or Reality? The Russian Council for International Affairs was established two years ago. We supported this initiative, and I think we, uh, we were right to do so. I hope that the civil society representatives, scholars, diplomats, and military people on the Council feel the real demand we have for their views and contribution. Wait a minute, uh, why would the military officers would even be on the Council, which is technically a foreign policy think tank dedicated to preserving peace and giving advice, and I didn't see the Ministry of Defense anywhere there? Uh, unless, I mean, those people are, let's say, uh, a special kind of military officer. The kind that you would expect to be under the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, after all. Now, this is really weird, as uh, the Russian president basically says, uh, Yes, we, we really uh, want your views and contribution. Basically, you make me look good. This is uh, a very strange thing for a think tank to do. But that's not even it. The, the, that Interfax holding built on the huge news agency that's independent journalism. And they're actively participating in the foreign affairs, as you can understand from their place on the council, as, as Dmitry Medvedev, Mr. President, has just stated. How and why exactly are independent journalists allowed to uh, form the foreign policies of a country? Maybe they are just crazy good and crazy independent and doing their job well, right? Well now, let's look at the, the, the Russia's foreign affairs, and figure out what our independent media holding company slash largest news agency from which everyone grabs their news, including this uh, Rubalte Cruz site and many others, what they have reported about the foreign policy. Maybe they are super honest and I'm just exaggerating here and uh, that is not Russian propaganda at all. By the way, uh, knowing that the foreign ministry of Russia is very involved in this think tank, after all, 
it's a foreign affairs think tank. Does that mean that one section of the foreign ministry there is acting in direct opposition of the other sections? I mean, foreign ministry really doesn't strengthen peace by attacking their your allies and exiting territory while all the time while this is happening, stating in the media and repeating ad nauseum that uh, <clears throat> no, 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 the military units without recognition marks, uh, those are volunteers. And obviously anyone can buy uniforms, guns, tanks, anti-aircraft missiles and organize into well-trained volunteer militias who just spontaneously want to liberate the Ukrainian people and Crimean Cossacks from, uh, uh... Different Ukrainian people and Crimean Cossacks. Yes. Obviously, we would never invade our allies. Ever. And we would uh, never be uh, the, the great... Uh, we, we would never do this. We are a nation of uh, peace and greatness. And, you know, as you know, after the annexation of Crimea a year later in 2015, it turns out, by Putin himself revealing it, it was in all the major news outlets, Putin himself reveals it, no less, that, um, you know, we actually were involved uh, in there, just uh, didn't feel like uh, telling anyone at the time. You know. <laughs> Excellent, isn't it? And now, the news agencies are all saying that, uh, obviously, the, we reunified Crimea with Russia. We saved the, you know, uh, those people who live there. Uh, in fact, we saved them from uh, the Nazis. Uh, EU and USA uh, supported and funded the Nazis, obviously, and they are uh, uh, terrorists and uh, evil. So uh, we are the, the good guys, uh, etc. And, and so on. Well, if they are so proud of liberating Crimean people from the evil Ukrainian Nazis, and really, uh, Russian, uh, Russian Times especially, and all sorts of Russian media lately have been calling Ukrainian Nazis a lot. L lately terrorists, but uh, mainly Nazis. Now, think about it. Uh, if Ukrainians are evil, 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 terrible Nazis, and you're so proud of, of saving them that they have this uh, one logical question here, why didn't you just reveal that earlier? Why didn't you say, hey, they are all Nazis, and uh, here's the proof that they're Nazis and everything? Well, maybe there's something shady on this. As we can see here, Interfax is nowhere near independent good journalism. It doesn't criticize its government, ever doesn't criticize anything, it publishes what the state tells it to publish, posts it as fact, and uh, basically follows the lead of, <clears throat> guess what, foreign ministry and everything. Very suspicious, but uh, the more I looked into this, the more this Russian International Affairs Council seemed to be involved with every reporting thing ever. Russian Times uses Interfax uh, a lot, everyone uses that. And Interfax only does things that uh, basically is good for the Russian state, obviously. They never criticize anyone, and... Uh, of course, I cannot pinpoint exactly the things, but... By looking at the projects that this Russian think tank of, of Foreign Affairs Council, they're involved in basically everything. They, as they say themselves, fund a project, fund companies by Russians abroad, they uh, support Russian-speaking people, support Russian education and everything, Basically, what they do is they spend a lot of money on this so-called soft power, as Putin himself has defined it. And the Russian International Russian International Affairs Center is a council. I'm sorry, <laughs> I can't be bothered with this propaganda think tank, really, because that's what they that, that's what they really really look like. Because if you have an affairs council which uh, is which gives advice to the government. While it really looks like the government is just telling them what to do, and they are they they are the central hub of all the Russian-funded activities abroad. 
all the newspapers centered around these regions, uh, of which Rubaltic Ru is uh, Rubaltic Ru is our, our Baltic version of uh, Russian propaganda center. Russian Times is is for you in America, you know, or everywhere. This is how these things happen. Russian International uh, International Affairs Council is um, the central hub of this. How to say this? Uh, propaganda HQ. And you can read it on their, their homepage too. I, I don't even have to go through here on everything. Just type in Russian International Affairs Council and you will find how good and great they are. But if you look at what projects they fund in what countries and what's going on in these countries, if you just do a slight comparison, you'll see for yourselves. And that's much better than me explaining this to you. So please go visit that site. It's fully in English because all these quotes are just from this site. And I don't even know. I guess when journalism just follows what the state wants it to do, it gets really, really bad. But yeah, back on, on, on things about Ukraine there, because that's important too. See, first, Nazi analogies appeared only on the pro-Join Russia posters in Crimea slightly before the referendum day. Before that, the Ukrainians were the corrupt servants of the imperialistic West, of course, and funded by CIA, but not Nazis. Oh, and uh, at this point, <laughs> of course, all the Interfax media states that Donetsk is also, you know, all people and there is no involvement here. No, no, no. These people also get their uh, Russian equipment uh, by buying that in the you know, convenience store. Walmart sells uh, missiles and tanks. Yes. And, and apparently, as of late, as of late, Ukrainians, apparently, according to, the, according to Russian state media and this Interfax, which is technically independent, <clears throat> yeah, it's it's owned by uh, people close to Putin, obviously. And Ukrainians by now are a state that uses terrorists now as well. It apparently they are the they use the world's most incompetent, overweight, stupid, and least dangerous terrorists. If the Russian media version, uh, of course, originally by Interfax, is is even true. The only way how these terrorists could be sent by Ukraine was if they wanted to play a prank or something. Especially, for one, since neither EU nor USA nor most other countries actually support and recognize the annexation of Crimea. But they do hate terrorism and fight against any countries that support it. So, obviously, Ukrainian government that eventually wants to join EU and NATO, that is struggling in constant battles in the, the country of the East and needs all the support it can get, that this here government, right here, that they would a train incredibly bad and send incredibly stupid terrorists to Crimea. About one of them, the latest news word that he was uh, in a Russian prison serving a 23 year, three years sentence, uh, also being uh, HIV positive and a complete junkie. So yeah, Ukrainian government would take a person from a Russian prison who's been sitting there for many, many, many years who has been in Ukraine last time, like 15 years ago, and trained them incredibly, incredibly bad uh, to Crimea to blow up stuff and do sabotages. For one, uh, the, the, the thought was that uh, Crimean Cossacks right now in the Crimea are looked at as uh, very suspiciously because they don't support Russian government at all. So sending a Crimean Cossack to do the terrorism thing, it, it, it looks nice on paper, like, it's like, hey, look, they are actually all terrorists and evil. But it makes no sense, because Crimean Cossacks are under constant surveillance. <laughs> if, if you wanted to send terrorists there, I suppose your best option would be to just, hey, how about a Russian tourist 
not uh, for who actually enters uh, and enters kind of legally without even checking a visa and maybe you know if you're a Ukrainian terrorist how about entering Russia not on the border of Crimea how about entering Russia in completely different part of your border and then traveling to Crimea through Russia and all those weird things maybe if you wanted to do something so uh, uh if there are terrorists, and if they would send it there, then like I said, incredibly bad, incredibly stupid terrorists to Crimea. Especially since technically most of the world still considers the Crimeans Ukrainian citizens, not Russian, not recognizing the annexation. Second thing. During the time of massive need and being hopeful with regards to the cooperation to the West, which is extremely important to them, Ukrainians definitely would do the one thing that would completely and definitely piss off all the Ukrainian Western allies. Obviously. And see, uh, they would do both of those things, that is, blowing up Ukrainians with the most incompetent terrorists ever, and losing all of Western support, while at the same time openly provoking Russia for more war, while they are in the difficult war already. That they need help dealing with the actual war. <laughs> yeah, if the Ukrainian government has actually done this, that I'm pretty sure that they would be instantly lynched by their own people for high treason. Because this is not just incompetency. This is incompetency to a level that, it's, that gets taken to the absurd. And these are kind of the implied claims of the Russian government now. But thankfully, <laughs> thankfully, when, you, when you're a state-funded propaganda machine and that calls themselves a journalist, and you don't have to worry about having true facts, you sometimes get sloppy. And FSB, uh, Federal Security Bureau people, uh, working together with Interfax, of course. Oh, Interfax. <laughs> nice news agency. Good that they're in the council, right? Now, they kind of get, did get sloppy. According to an article on uh, the site Global Voices, on August the 10th, the Russian state TV network Channel 1 uh, aired a news segment with footage from the FSB, provided by Interfax, supposedly depicting the results of a special operation by federal police on August the 8th, the discovery of dozens of improvised explosive devices, mines and ammunition, supposedly recovered from the Ukrainian spies. Now in this, in this broadcast, this was like the video and, and, and it happens in the night, and you can see the, the, the shot of, of, of Crimean, Crimean sky and everything, and there's news put in, but the problem is, there's a, there's a shot of Crimean, Crimean sky with a nice full moon on it. Now, certain Sasha Andreeva, a blogger and an amateur ast astronomer living in Moscow, points out quite nicely and accurately that the moon depicted in the scene could not have been filled any later than July 21st. That's the last time there was a full moon in the Northern Hemisphere. Writing on Facebook, journalist Sergei Pakrochmenko shared Andreeva's finding, adding that Russian investigators similarly submitted apparent, apparently false evidence against the Ukrainian pilot, pilot Nadia Savchenko, when she was when she was on trial in Russia. And he he jokes that the FSB's academies they, they start to need they start they need to start teaching astronomy, referring to certain research by an open source investigative journalists at the conflict intelligence team. Suggesting that the shadows caused by the trees in the background of video footage of uh, this uh, Savchen caused this pilot's capture actually refute the prosecutor's claim of claims about when she was taken into custody, thereby exonerating her. But, you know, those are, um, those are just uh, facts, and uh, facts don't matter, <laughs> apparently, as we can clearly see. And look, 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 
I know that all large countries with, with um, global ambitions are guilty of this, uh, and uh, even small countries when they want to do their populations, and some have more freedom of the press, and others have less freedom of the press, and, and some of them are quite adept at hiding state control and things like that, but, uh, yeah. If Interfax is providing all of this, and they're not just lying, they are bad at lying, and scientifically wrong. This think tank is nothing but a gigantic propaganda machine involving diplomats, military, uh, by that there we mean intelligence agencies, Ministry of Science and Education, and this will come important, so that the truth is based on quote-unquote science, and would be direct diligently taught in schools. And, of course, let's be honest here, absolutely state-controlled media, which task is to spread this truth everywhere, both outside and inside Putin's weird Russia. And yeah, like I said, Blue Baltic Crew is just the face of this machinery, just turned to Baltics. About the educational part of all of this, often uh, you see Russian scientists proving the weirdest facts, and um, mostly if you look at pseudo-scientific articles on the internet uh, a lot, then you might see that they often quote some Russian research centers, of which there are many, and you can just, you know, buy one. Russian science is also lately, as of late, at least I'm talking about the science uh, based on, on Russian things, and that's, uh, that's a really shame. So, to, to give you a quick recap here, the chief editor of Rubaltikru, Sergei Rekeda, Rubaltikru is the guy who published this article, runs a Baltic region country news specialized newspaper, who works in the foreign industry funded think tank, and also is a tenured professor at this, uh, uh, oh well, I know a political science, but director general of the Information Analytical Center of Social and Political Processes in the Post-Civic Space, oh boy. But like I said, this means that this guy is tasked with analyzing all the political processes in, uh, uh, where exactly, CIS countries, everything on this side from the Iron Curtain. He's also super, super busy, being the chief editor on the news site about the Baltics, a major news site, a massive news site, mind by that. It's a nice, interesting thing that you can uh, be in the thir three very, very demanding positions at the same time, right? Oh yeah, but, uh, wait, 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 who actually owns the site he edits? Ah, of course we dig there. Oh yeah, up to June 10, 2015, that would be the owners of Rubaltikru site, would be OOO, uh, that's the Russian abbreviation of Limited Liability Company, <clears throat> Baltic Center for Information and Analytics. No, 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 please don't mistake with the post Soviet Space Informational and Analytical Center. It's just Baltic Center of things, right? And uh, this uh, this is run by our friend Tregeda. Those two are obviously completely unrelated things, these Baltic Research Informational Center and the post-Soviet one. <laughs> obviously. Well, uh, actually, kind of unrelated. You see, according to the Rubaltic Rus site, and this is where things get weird, the news portal was started in 2013 by the Baltic Center for Information and Analytics Scientists from the Immanuel Kant's Kaliningrad University. So these scientists formed, instead of just doing it from their own information center, they form a limited liability company, uh, the owner of which happens to be connected to the Moscow University, which sits in this foyer, which uh, in turn sits in another tenured position, when in turn he also sits on the main center of Russian propaganda machine. Now, isn't that nice? Now, think about it. That article, that pure propaganda article with which I started this episode, that was written by people from an institute, 
from a university named after one of the greatest philosophers of all times. They claim that this is science. They do this, they approve, and this is what often passes for humanities or, or journalism. These are scientists. Because, you know, it's just more legitimate if, if you can call anything scientific and you can start your a nice uh, slanting article with Final proof of, li of Lithuanian independence, greatest historical falsification of all time. If a journalist uh, just screams like that, then it's one thing. If it's approved by people from Immanuel Kant's Kaliningrad University, actual scholars, it gets legitimacy. And maybe now you can understand why the Academy of Sciences and uh, Russian Ministry of Education is also deeply involved in uh, this Russian International Affairs Council. <laughs> they're even the co they're even the co-founders. Kind of makes you think, doesn't it? Now this uh, limited liability company of, of Baltic Center, they're no longer the owners, but they still exist as a something. They're they're still the owners of the domain Rubaltikro. But the Rubaltikru itself, as a, as a, is now a separate company, owned by a private person whose name is considered secret information. That was the closest I could actually get it, get to it because uh, I'm doing the, doing this from Latvian internet, and that means that uh, a lot of Russian information is just hidden from me. I really can't dig into this, even though uh, previously you could see who the owners were. Right now, it's impossible. Top secret information. Now, why would an owner's name of a private institution, Rubaltikru, a news site, uh, found a private institution, like, that's why they formed the limited liability company, so that uh, it wouldn't look like it's state-owned. Because, you know, if, a, if, an, if an institute who is state-funded makes a news site, then it's kind of bad, and people will look at it funny and say, yeah, you know, it's state-funded, it, it, it might be very biased, but if you make a separate limited liability company, even though it has the same name as the institute made by the people from the institute, it kind of, uh, you know, gives it more legitimacy. But then, apparently, someone up there in our nice informational center figured out that, yeah, you know, <laughs> it doesn't really fool anyone, as, it, as the, the names are the same and the people working in the same is, so uh, it changed hands. And again, question. Do you know any other private-owned company for which, with a journalist pass, mind you, in, uh, in, in, in databases, at least here in, in Latvia we have Lursov, where you can just go in and, and find the registered owners of any company. Private companies, that think that they're not national security, they're nothing, they're just a private newspaper. You can, and actually, people often, like, when it comes to newspapers, often there's this fine print somewhere in the last page here, just typing who's the owner of, 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 of things. It's public information. Now, why would, why would a private thing hide uh, and make it top secret? Who owns it? If previously they were really proud, and they are still proud that this site was created, by the people in, uh, and there the are a lot of people that, that are involved in this. But you know what? At one point, I, I just accepted the fact that it's top secret. Because you know what? Any of the previously mentioned people or institutions, all of them, they would easily qualify for this. And actually, it really doesn't change anything at this point. Besides, it's not like the page is, page is worth much. Ah, you see, this is important. Uh, I decided that uh, I'm, I'm not an expert here. And I don't know um, much about computers that much. I know how to use them, but uh, there is a th the websites and everything have a, have a price. I don't know their algorithms or anything, how they calculate this, but technically it's supposed to be 
how like how much ads the site have, how the CEO is managed, how well it's run, how how much uh, you you should pay to buy that site, and if it would be profitable to you to buy it or something. Now, uh, think about it. This is a major news site uh, based in Russia. Chief editor in, in chief editor is in this major foundation supported by, by the president and everything. But it's completely independent, of course, yeah, but it's uh, still a major news site which publishes articles all in multiple languages, okay, mostly Russian, but they all they also have articles in in Latin Lithuanian and everything they have a multinational team with with some foreigners in it even uh they publish news articles all about about all over the Baltic region, they give their information to russian Russian things they're a major 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 thing here, okay so I just thought, you know, if it's they should be able to make make money, right? They're a major news article. They they uh, they need money to operate. So I looked at the site, and there are suspiciously very little ads there. So that got that got me thinking, and uh, I went to because I don't trust only one of them. I uh, went to two of these nice specific sites dedicated to checking out and analyzing websites to give some exact uh, exact numbers about how much approximately this site would be worth. I used two of them of the first ones that Google popped up me. First of them was worthofweb.com. Now worthofweb.com gives Rubaltikru a value of $31,530. And the second one, siteofprice.org, gives it even less, uh, only $10,656. Now, uh, I, I don't, I'm not an expert here, like I said, I don't understand how much a website would be worth or anything. So, uh, in comparison to, to this, how much a site is worth, and basically how much ad revenue the site uh, kind of gets, because very little ads there and anything, um, how, how can they manage to pay off all these salaries and everything? Um, how does this completely independent website get, the, get their funding or something? Um, I don't know, I didn't know the numbers, so um, I compared it to a local. Latvian-based news site, uh, quite a bit smaller, very much smaller. They're still pretty pro-Putin, uh, but they at least they fund themselves. Uh, they're based in Latvia, you can check their owners. Um, it, they publish their content in Russian. They're quite popular amongst the Russian population, and I also read them, because uh, those articles which are not pro-Putin, uh, but those like investigative, everyday articles, they're really, really good. There are good journalists working there, too. Um, it's called Vesti.lv. Vesti LV, if you wanted an English pronunciation. Yeah, they're, they they just write about Latvia, and then they, they grab some facts from Russian news agencies, but they do, they do their own investigations here. But they don't really do... They are nowhere near as large as a news site which would be supposed to cover all of the Baltic region. Because uh, it's not just about the three states. Like I said, it also involves Sweden, Finland, uh, sometimes even post stuff about Denmark, like, you know, all over this region. So guess what? VSTLV has a worth on worth of web of $872,000 and $109,000 on side of price. Uh, I wonder, isn't it weird that a small local Latvian news site is technically with much more ad revenue, because they actually run a lot of ads and stuff, but uh, they are worth much more by themselves as a company, as this site itself is its value, than a major 
major uh, Russian news outlet about the Baltic region. So that makes you wonder if they don't get their money from ads and they're, 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 they don't have that much worth there. How do these uh, mystical owners of Rubaltikru get their money? Oh, wait. Yeah, well, th that's how we live on the eastern border. Uh, because if you backtrack a little bit and you look at all the nice connections, this is one other nice, excellent evidence about hidden, nice state financing. Great. And now imagine that we have a bunch of people that partially because our own government's errors, partially because of outside influences, just have lived here for 25 years or more, and just don't speak Latvian. And all the information that they get is from these wonderful sources like Rubaldikru and wonderful, wonderful articles like this. That is their only sphere of information. And they don't read media in English either. Why? Because these sites, Rubaltikru, Russian Times, or whatever your local analog is, you can you can find. By the way, uh, information that that information think tank, yeah, they actually state which uh, which which sites they officially donate money to, and Interfax provides news for all of them, anyways. Anyway, uh, they always spread nice words that everyone is evil. These articles. Such propaganda, like such basic, what is this? This is completely historically inaccurate. Articles are posted everywhere daily, both here and in Russia, about whatever. How USA is totally evil. How you oppress people. How everything is terrible. Uh, how Europe are literally gay fascists. Seriously. They, uh, some, some MPs even have called Europe gay fascists. Uh, everyone else is a Nazi, Europe is a uh, gay fascist. Really. How everyone, whom they don't like, mostly us and Estonians, but lately Ukrainians, and as you can see from this article, are terrible, terrible, terrible Nazis. This is their sphere of information, this is, this is what they get. And also, one of the more interesting things is that, uh, one of these other sites that is, uh, funded by this, this foundation, Lentaru, yeah, not only do they publish these propaganda articles about how you are evil, but for one, I recently found an interesting article which I will try to translate about... Uh, check this out. How the CIA stole all of their technological advancements in the Soviet era from the Soviets, and how you got to the moon because you stole the tech from the Soviet Union. It exists. Stuff like that. It's gotten to the point here. In, in this this region, that I've, I've I've spoken with Russian tourists, who have come to visit their relatives or or just visit here because we are a popular tourist destination for Russians uh, since since the Soviet era because our our Yurmala was the most western part. And you know what? Some of them are pleasantly surprised that indeed we all speak Russian here, and that no, you won't be arrested for speaking Russian, and that no, we don't beat up Russians, and that we don't torture Russian babies and that you can get medical attention if you are Russian. Those are real stories from real people that I've talked to. Because if, if this is all that you hear, all the time, crafted by the masters of propaganda and the best USSR traditions, oh, including, of course, the occasional threats to throw nukes at everybody by Zhirinovsky, then you think like this. And this is not even counting the state-funded troll armies 
where which uh, officially they are of, of course they do not exist but you know what if, if i've received death threats multiple times and you can literally see them on the uh, posting in the russian language comments section here and they're always there because you can just recognize them because uh, now some of these sites have like have registration by facebook and uh, when you look at a certain very pro-russian poster and then uh, just for the interest, you go to their Facebook profile and you see that uh, this is a very generic Latvian name with like zero friends and, uh, you know, it's kind of obvious that a profile was made so that they could just register and post there. Yeah, it's kind of scary. You know what? If Zhirinovsky would be president instead of Putin, then we'd all be doomed instantly. As far as the Russian media goes, Putin's neither the most evil or the most flashy or the most crazy Russian politician out there. But what will happen when he's gone is someone like Zhirinovsky or Ramzan Kadyrov, who have absolute disregard for human rights or, in, or indeed human lives takes power, what would happen then? To be honest, I don't want to see that day. I hope you found this informative. I hope you enjoyed the show. It was a bit difficult for me to do. And... Um, I think I really should look into this more uh, in detail in the future, and I should provide you with, uh, and with, which I shall do, provide you with the nice chronological events with all the details that happened in the awakening era here in the Baltic states. So, thank you for listening. Do svidanya, tovarish. This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org for more shows like this one. Thank you for listening to The Eastern Border. If you have any comments or specific details you'd like to know, you're welcome to leave it in the comment section on our site, theeasternborder.lv, and we'll rummage even to the western border to find you an answer. Like this podcast? Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or on our RSS feed. Happiness is mandatory. Good reviews and donations feed the farmers of our kolkhoz in the great motherland. The Eastern Border salutes you. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.